Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Pamela Reuter Finstra, a very dear friend of mine and uh, my teacher at uh, Eastern Michigan University when I was studying uh, for my second master's degree there. And um, she is very well known to the organ world as a great uh, improviser, uh, and she is very much interested in historical improvisational techniques. And also, uh, she is a composer, a teacher, organist, and uh, in general, very inspirational figure. Uh, today, I'd like to talk uh, uh, about uh, her recent. Uh, most recent project uh, Bach and the Art of Improvisation Volume 1 which was published in 2011 so I hope uh, uh, this conversation will reveal some of her ideas into the world uh, of uh, historically based uh, improvisation techniques and I hope it will inspire at least some of you uh, to try your hand at uh, improvising in the style of Bach Let's go to the show. Thank you so much for doing this okay. interview. So I'm s- thrilled to have you uh, here um, on 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 this conversation, and I was really excited to talk to you about uh, Bach and the art of improvisation. Your your book, your treatise, basically, Volume One. Well, thank you, Vidas, for your interest and and for your work with improvisation. It's always wonderful to talk with it. Kindred spirit. Thank you so much. Um, uh, let me start this conversation when, with asking you how you um, first fell in love uh, with uh, with the organ and with improvisation in general. Maybe you remember a special moment in your life that you could share with our listeners. Thank you. Yes, I started playing the organ when I was in grade eight. Um, I had taken piano lessons, and my piano teacher was also an organist, and the church needed some organists, and so I just started taking lessons. And I also went to schools where children sang in the classroom, so I had been playing hymns and folk songs and things in the classroom from third grade on. And um, I always loved the connection between a keyboard instrument and the human voice. And especially so once I started playing the organ, if it was a pipe organ, because of the breathing that it corresponds with the winding of the organ. And, um, but as a child, I improvised, I would go, I would practice my piano lessons, and then I would listen to recordings that my parents had, and I would play the, play one track of a recording, and then go to the piano and try to see if I could play what I had heard. So it was great ear training, really. I was just trying to figure out what was going on in the music and how other people made music. Yes, uh, just by playing others, other pieces, right? And you started to analyze them and you started to decipher them so that you could later understand and better comprehend it. That's wonderful, Pamela. I remember how we first met, right? Uh, it was in, in Göteborg uh, International Organ Academy back in 2000. Uh, yes. With, with OSHRA, we were participants and... Uh, 
and uh, I remember you were the f- the first uh, basically organ professor who who greeted us and uh, and showed us uh, showed us around and and we made this uh, wonderful contact and uh, uh, immediately we we of course uh, um, thought that uh, you were so inspiring person and teacher uh, that we c- would would love to to know more about your your teaching style your your inspirations and and you you did um, uh, teach us uh, later at EMU at Eastern Michigan University for our master's degree so uh, it was a very very um, exciting journey for both of us for Osha and me and it all started in Sweden, in Gothenburg International Organ Academy. So thank you so much, uh, Pamela, for your inspiration. It's just a wonderful colleagueship that I enjoy with you in the Aufra and and friendship as well. Um, yes, so the the in, the improvisation then that I did as a child, I um, continued to do in the practice room when I first went to college. Yes. And... Um, but I noticed, I listened outside the practice room doors, and I noticed, huh, I don't think anyone else is improvising. And it occurred to me, ah, maybe maybe professional musicians don't improvise. Um, because I had been taking these recordings and not only figuring out how somebody else created the music, then once I figured that out, I would make variations on it. And I continued to do that until I thought no one else is improvising. So maybe I should stop. And so I stopped for two years when I was between my freshman and junior year in college. And then I went to Dort College, which is a Dutch immigrant school in Northwest Iowa. And it, um, the, the organ professor there, Joan Ringerwall, uh, invited Klaas Bolt from Harlem, the Netherlands, to come and offer a, a psalm fest. And, and Klaas Bolt came and he used the organ and made those people sing better than I've ever heard anyone sing before. And I was so interested all along in him playing. That's what, what I loved about the organ was being able to build community in this way to, that everyone joined together could could create something more than what each individual could be by themselves. And that's what he did. And then he improvised in the hymns. He improvised before and after the hymns. He improvised organ works based on the Genevan Psalms. And I was I was just in heaven. I thought, this is organ playing. This is communication. This is what every musician needs to know. And and from that moment on, then I became very passionate about advocating improvisation because I realized, ah, it's not that professional musicians shouldn't improvise. It's just that they haven't had the opportunity to learn how. But imagine what it could do to their musicianship if they can learn how to improvise. So that started the path of improvisation pedagogy. I had to figure that out. Well, that's amazing story. Thank you so much, Pamela, for sharing it with us. You know, uh, people from uh, probably all over the world are listening to us um, uh, when when this conversation will go live, and uh, they can't help but uh, uh, wonder about your your um, fascination with historical improvisation. By historical, I mean that you try to recreate 
the techniques and methods and practices that people used, uh, one might say, 300 years ago or 400 years ago, you know, like, uh, this is, this is very, very old technique, but today, even in 21st century, it might come alive, right, under your fingers. Yes, well, and I've had many people say, why start with Bach and that era? Because Bach is difficult. It's very complex harmonically. And I did, I have tried, I've experimented with um, different students and also with myself to try to improvise in the various styles, in a modern style and in a French romantic style, various 20th century ideas and, and um I tried doing that without the foundation of the 18th century, but I was teaching music theory from my very first university position in, at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I had a, uh, my load was both organ, harpsichord, as well as sacred music and music theory. And uh, so I was very acquainted with all these different theory texts and theory approaches, and they all started really with the 18th century harmony and would the goal was to be able to analyze Bach chorales. And I thought, well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, improvisation requires a great deal of knowledge about theory to ha have the improvisation start where the theory is often um, begun in terms of pedagogy. And when I worked with students, starting with Bach and understanding 18th century harmony, and, and mel melody and linear um, counterpoint and how the voice is connected both horizontally and vertically, the results of the improvisations were at a much higher quality when they were, when it was just a little freer um, trying to meander through a, a toccata by having fast figures and the fingers, but then the harmony lacked substance and often the the piece itself lacked direction and form. Um, but, but starting with Bach chorales, it, it just made a lot of sense. So although Bach didn't write a treatise, right, to uh, do a lot of research in terms of looking at quotes by Bach's pupils, um, looking at the materials we do have from Bach's hand and from his pupils' hands, uh, and then studying very carefully his music and how he composed his music, um, and the descriptions of how he improvised and how he taught improvisation so that I could reconstruct a pedagogy using 18th century harmony, but the pedagogy that was uh, comprehensive musicianship that connected every aspect of musicianship into the, the study and the pedagogy of improvisation. And you did uh, write in your book, uh, Bach and the Art of Improvisation, at least in the first volume that is now pu published, right? And it took, it took about 10 years uh, f uh, to, to, to publish these ideas in a form of the book, but it, it really represents a lifetime of, of your experience in experimentation, teaching and researching, performing and improvising. I'm citing now Joel Spierstra that he wrote in, in the foreword for your book. So I'm really excited today to to know more about uh, this book, about uh, what kind of ideas you explore. Could you share a little bit uh, 
Uh, it's an exciting topic. Well, and you mentioned Sweden. I'm I'm most grateful to go art to Hans Davidson, to Joel Spears, to Paul Peters, my colleagues there, who were so supportive in um, in encouraging me to continue investigating this and to turn this into a book so that it could be used by other people. Uh, and it was thanks to my, uh, my time at GoArt that this came, this idea of putting this into a book came about with Hans Davidson's encouragement. And I had time there to try these ideas out with colleagues from around the world, an international group of researchers and performers and organ builders, and then um, also with students in Yutabori at the university there, and students at um, uh, Smarano. I taught in Italy at this uh, clavichord academy that Giacomo Corra um, puts on, and I know you've been um, interested in that as well. But it, it took years and years of trying out the ideas because um, I think really the only way to, to come up with ideas that work and are well-tested is to make a lot of mistakes along the way. <laughs> and I had to make these mistakes to, to be able to say, okay, that didn't work. So what can I learn from that that can work the next time? And uh, thank, thankfully, students and, and every student I've had has seen me make mistakes and, and has helped me to know how to, how to teach better, how to come up with a, a more coherent pedagogical uh, method of improvisation. And it's all that testing and learning from the mistakes that eventually came to this back in the art of improvisation volume one well before we talk about this uh, this volume of of your uh, improvisation treatise you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that the performer uh, or improviser has has to be not afraid of mistakes can you elaborate a little bit because i know many people who want to try improvise to improvise uh, or improvisation in various styles not only in the box style but but uh, even in the box style or especially in the box style they are afraid that they will never reach this this dream, right? Because Bach was alpha and omega, basically, for musicians. <laughs> we start with Bach and we probably will end with Bach at the end of our lives. So how can you deal with this uh, with the fear of failure, fear of making mistakes as an improviser? I know it's 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 it, you somehow conquered this fear. So I'm really curious. Uh, what yeah, you say. it um, it takes a childlike attitude, and uh, since publishing the Bach and the Art of Improvisation, I have spent a great deal of time with children, because I realized that this fear factor is so present in professional musicians because. They want to be able to improvise at the level they play improvisation, but they have put thousands of hours into practicing their, um, I mean, the way the level they play repertoire, excuse me. They put thousands of hours into practicing the repertoire, and it really takes that same investment of time to learn how to improvise at that same high level. And so it's, it, it's a, hum, it's a humbling experience. It, it means having a beginner's mind again and, and being playful and, and daring to laugh and, oh, 
that didn't sound good. Well, let's see, what could, what could I do to change that to make it sound better? To be able to laugh and have a sense of humor about it. And whoops, that one went off the cliff. But okay, but the first part worked. I'll take that first part and try another direction. And you see this in children. If you watch small children playing, they don't give up. If, if something doesn't work, if they're stacking blocks and something doesn't work, they just try another way. You know, they don't say, oh, I can't do it after one try. Exactly. They just keep trying. And it's that beginner's mind, that openness of a child without any expectations that it has to sound like this. It has to sound like my repertoire playing. Or it has to sound like another organist or another improviser I know. Just the beauty of... Ah, listen to those three notes. Those three notes are fantastic together. And another bonus to listening at that um, tiny level, it's like watching ants on a sidewalk. It, It means that our ears are much more open to hearing sound and the way we produce sound. And, oh, you know, if I'm only listening to three three notes, if I'm playing that on the organ or the clavichord or the harpsichord or the piano or uh, on the wind or wind or um, string instrument, what was that sound like? Could I make it bloom more? Could I, I give it more direction? Could I give it more affect? Is it communicating? And then just asking all of these questions about those three notes and pretty soon there are five notes, and pretty soon those five notes are joined by another voice. And then it becomes a phrase. And then we've accomplished a phrase today. And then let's celebrate that phrase. And just taking those tiny steps and feeling joyful and satisfied with those steps. It's like trying a new wonderful food and being able to really savor it in a way that the the professional food tasters or wine tasters do just savor these little bits of music and then once we have enough little bits of music we can start putting them together into a, a brief piece that's right so it's all about communicating and storytelling isn't it pamela Ah, yes. Yes. You, do you remember the storytelling we've, we used to do in improvisation classes? I was just going to, uh, to bring up this subject because uh, right now I'm working with storytelling in, in, in organ improvisation. So it basically, thanks to you, Pamela, you introduced uh, me to the larger world of storytelling through musical means. And it continues to, to touch uh, my practices and through me other listeners as well so thanks well, a lot so, uh, thank you I'm so delighted that you're bringing to life new tales well old tales really from Lithuania um, and making those uh, known to the world and also communicating through music in this way I think this is fabulous and not only from Lithuania for example you can you can even improvise on uh, uh, I did just recently on the Hans Christian Andersen's fairy, ta- fairy tale, uh, The Little Mermaid. And it, it, it's, it's uh, such a beautiful story, right? And, uh, and so many ways to depict this, uh, this intricate uh, adventure and um, uh, 
fairly sad story in music, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm very, very grateful to you that you introduced uh, me and others in this class uh, that we were together at EMU. Um, I remember we improvised on the story about the the musicians of Bremen, right? Uh, yes, it was yeah. such an exciting uh, musical adventure. We 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 used all kinds of keyboard instruments that were present in this class in this hall. Basically, organ, harpsichord, piano, harmonium. What else? Um, basically, uh, all that was available. And we even uh, performed it uh, in front of the group of kindergartners, right? Yeah, so so yeah, that was really really amazing. I think. Yes, and if, if it's with character-rich stories, especially, it's possible to do so much. If, if there are several characters, and each one of them has a strong personality, and then you can give that personality a, a really strong affect or set of affects with your themes that you create with improvisation. It's it's just so dynamic, and it communicates in ways that I think um, many other just composed pieces. Uh, aren't able to tell that the story to that degree. Heavens, Greek mythology. I mean, the, it's it's infinite the possibilities. Exactly, and it the subject and the the musical ideas basically doesn't have to be modern or twenty first century, right? Uh, like we do sometimes if we use uh, French. Uh, French modal techniques in, on the organ or even uh, rhythms that are uh, too complex for the Baroque period. But we can remember that Johann Kuhnau, just basically contemporary of Johann Sebastian Bach, wrote uh, biblical sonatas, right? Six biblical yes. sonatas, which were basically basically musical stories, storytelling through musical ideas about the David and Goliath, right? About yes. the healing of 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 uh, of soul, right? And this this was amazing when I, I discovered. So I hope you also incorporate this in your teaching. Yes, yes, I think it's a wonderful way to free up the improvisation as well, because suddenly the, the, the improviser is thinking so much about the story and the characters and not in that left hemisphere of the brain. That, so that's the right hemisphere, creative part, and the left hemisphere of the brain is analytical, which is important for improvisation, but it can also have a, a lot of critique and judgment and that that's not so helpful all the time for the flow of the improvisation so i think yeah the storytelling is is a wonderful outlet i used to do this um on a regular basis with keith hill the instrument maker and marianne ploger composer and uh our perception specialist as when they were in michigan and they in their keith's workshop he always had numerous harpsichords and forte pianos and instruments. He was making guitars and violins. And and so we would get a group of people together and we would all sit in this workshop, which was perfect because there were wood shavings on the floor and there were unfinished instruments. So it had this atmosphere that this is a work in progress. Our, our improvisation was that as well. It wasn't as if we were on stage in a finely decorated parlor or something it was it was the whole atmosphere was conducive to us just experimenting with improvisation and trying to 
tell stories as a group, as an improvisation society. So somebody would start and then somebody else would join in and, and tell more of the story, but it was all done through music. Uh, and the uh, Kiev Hill you mentioned is the famous harpsichord maker, right, from right. Michigan. And uh, the, his harpsichords are so, so, so well sounding and sweet uh, in character, and um, they come alive under good uh, harpsichord fingers, of course. But they are built so beautifully, of course. Uh, they are really uh, work works of art. Yes, he, Keith has studied the art and science of sound profoundly, and um, he's kind of done something similar uh, with instruments that I've been doing with improvisation, in that he goes to the old instruments and taps on them and listens to the tuning patterns on the wood mm -hmm. and has learned um, how to how to create uh, multiple layers of tuning patterns on the instruments to maximize the color and the resonance that they produce. He's now doing this with violins and violas to great success. And uh, yes, his harpsichords are among the most colorful and, and uh, resonant and clear speaking and affect filled that I've played in modern times, um, as well as historic instruments. Yes, so so your improvisation treatise is divided into uh, two volumes, right? Uh, volume one is basically uh, uh, devoted to chorale-based improvisation, right? And uh, and I know that uh, uh, later volume two will focus on other aspects such as continuum and free works, right? Basically, right. Uh, forthcoming uh, work of yours. So. So can you can you introduce us a little bit uh, about your work uh, in uh, in this uh, on this treatise and what you learned from it? Yes, this this work again it came from years of testing this with students and of course with myself. Um, I wanted to learn how to become a better improviser, and I thought, um, why not learn from the best? Learn from Bach, and even if I never achieve Bach's level. I'll never run out of the, the goals and ideas by searching Bach's music. So uh, why not just jump in and try? And um, so it starts with discovering patterns, finding sequences, um, understanding how thorough bass works and how voice leading works. So that putting two voices together, because Bach started teaching with chorales, and he would first give his students a chorale melody with a thorough bass, and they just had to fill in the alto and tenor. So I'm doing the same thing. Uh, and then after a while, he took away the soprano and had them make a soprano to a thorough, thorough bass and gave them a chorale melody and had them create the harmony. So step by step, it just over months of time and sometimes years of time, uh, they worked their way into being able to work with melody and harmony um, simultaneously and keeping in mind the, the vertical nature of all of the voices at play, even though the, they have to also line up horizontally to fit in harmony. Um, 
Yes, you you just mentioned something that I want to point out because it's so important, and many I think listeners will uh, will have this aha moment right now. Uh, you mentioned that first Bach gave the the cantus firmus choral melody in the soprano, and also the the bass, right? And asked a person, his student, uh, basically to fill in the middle parts, two, two middle parts, tenor and alto, right? So yes. this, um, this reminds me of how he himself created, for example, so, some of the choral preludes from Orgelbuchlein, right? When he yes. notated uh, first, first soprano and the bass, the pedal part, in um, basically larger larger uh, handwriting and then later uh, uh, filled in uh, the the mid- middle parts alto and uh, and uh, tenor so what you are doing basically corresponds very well t- to his own his own compositional process not only teaching process but also how he himself approached composing pieces that's right and what was interesting i mentioned Klaus bolt and Klaus bolt talked about the old the Dutch organs and how the Dutch organs were built to lead singing. So they had these vocal principles. You've heard maybe John Brumbaugh talk about the vocal principles of the Dutch organs. But they also had these very strong um, mutations and reeds. And the Dutch would accompany congreg- or lead congregational singing by soloing out a strong reed in the in the soprano and a strong reed in the pedal so that those outside voices were actually much more prominent than the inside voices. So they were thinking of this with the Genevan Psalms as well. And it, and it really matches the principles of sound, um, ideally, because if you have a strong foundation, then the overtones from that Uh, And you know this from singing in a choir, right? The choirs have a much easier time tuning. So I followed Bach's practice of giving the students a soprano melody, usually a chorale melody, with a thorough bass. And um, so as they learned how to realize the thorough bass in filling in the alto and tenor, then uh, once they were proficient at that, um, and uh, by the way, I started with that with 17th century harmonies first, because 17th century harmonies have uh, more root position chords and some first inversion chords, not as many non-harmonic tones and not as many um, other inversions, second and third uh, position inversions. And then, and then worked into 18th century harmony into up to the point of Bach chorales, where it's extremely rich harmony and all inversions and all non-harmonic tones included. So these harmonizations uh, that were done in in the 17th century, they're basically examples by Samuel Scheidt, probably uh, uh, from his uh, work, right? Um, suitable sure. for that. Yes, and then if you look at the Weimar Tabulatur of Johann yes. Pachtel, that um, that is a, an intermediate step uh, between the 17th century chorales and then Bach, because the those are also rather simply harmonized, and so that um, again, like Bach talked about, or Bach's pupils talked about how he presented everything in incremental steps, so that suddenly at the end of all their steps, they were able to improvise fugues and it didn't seem very difficult because it was just one more step on the ladder. But if you jump to fugue without doing all of these 
uh, layers of building the foundation of thorough bass with um, root position first inversion chords and then adding other inversions and non-harmonic tones, working into Bach chorales and then working through variations. Those are all these steps that eventually lead to being able to improvise free works and then ultimately fugue. So uh, is to make the students' life easier, you basically give the soprano and the bass, right? And then ask uh, uh, them to fill in the middle parts, alto and the tenor, just like Bach ask, would ask, right? Exactly. Excellent. That's a splendid approach. It makes um, beginners' life so much easier than to add uh, all three, three lower parts right away like in modern uh, harmony teaching. Yes, and it's important, I think, for um, young musicians or new musicians to be exposed to a lot of very strong bass lines, um, both hearing them and playing them. So there's the aural and tactile memory, but then also seeing them on the page to add the visual memory and, and the analytical memory, because a bass line doesn't just... I mean, when, there, when one puts a bass line to a melody, not just any note works. And even if the notes sound good, depending on how they relate to the next note or the previous note, I mean, there are so many dynamics here. It's, it's as if it's a, a family and each person interacts on the other person. And so we can't take into account just one note, but it's all the dynamics before and after and above and below the notes that exist. Yes. And what happens next, Pamela? What's the next step after that? So after the harmonization has been thoroughly practiced, then, then I do work with uh, a thorough bass alone, and then the improviser um, can start improvising soprano, alto, and tenor above the bass. And again, uh, emphasizing the outer voices first, mm -hmm. and then after that, can harmonize the soprano, the chorale melody, by then having a lot of exposure to strong bass lines and being able to uh, understand that certain uh, movements, such as ascending seconds, are typically strong in, in creating bass lines. Descending fifths or ascending fourths are typically strong because we find these movements in cadences. Yes. Uh, and then, um, then, of course, descending thirds work well in to create sequential activity, some sort of direction in the baseline. But there are certain uh, movements that aren't as strong, and particularly depending on what's going on with the soprano, um, we go through the rules of voice leading and, and also part writing, such as avoiding parallel fifths and octaves, of course, and avoiding odd intervals um, such as the the augmented second that wouldn't sound good melodically within any voice part. Yes, so you mentioned part writing. Do you recommend students, uh, uh, improvisation students, uh, they would uh, write in something or just extemporaneously try to improvise? Uh, do you recommend writing in something? Yeah, I think the best uh, improvisers are also composers, and it's it's really quite important to start by writing to make sure, I mean, this is helpful pedagogically because then when there's an interaction with the teacher and a student, 
it becomes clear what what parts of the part writing and the voice leading the student understands when it's written down, and then um, the the teacher can show which parts are working well and congratulate the student on that, and then also show which parts are not as strong and um, can be reworked to create something stronger. So that allows some back and forth. That of course also works with improvisation with a um, someone who's listening very carefully and can point these same things out. But the advantage is the, the analytical part is a little easier when there's some paper involved. And then um, hopefully that analytical portion gets transferred to the ears to be as strong as the eyes are in identifying either strengths or uh, weaknesses in the part writing. So yes, absolutely, writing down is, is very important. And then I had a wonderful student when I was first teaching who, when she would write uh, papers or when she would memorize works of, organ works of Bach, yes. what, she, what she would do is she would uh, start to, she would take a, a blank sheet of paper and cover the music and then write some of the main entrances. Say it's a fugue. She would write, okay, the fugue comes in on the note A in the alto in this measure. And then she would write those entrances in on those blank sheets of paper and then perhaps where the counter subject would be. Um, she would also do this with more homophonic music and just show herself where a mode shift might be or where a change in the form might be where the B section enters and then gradually um, worked her system down from all of these blank sheets of paper with little scribbles on to give her cues as to which voice was coming in where. To, she worked that down to a small note card and where the whole piece was summarized on a small note card. And that note card is very similar. What she did, her name is Dr. Melissa Mall. She's actually now, she's got a doctorate in organ and she's also a, a music librarian librarian at the University of Nebraska where you, when it, your alma mater. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and um, she, what she did, what Melissa did is exactly what the Greek orators used to do, but they wouldn't write it down. They would memorize their speeches in a way where they had the blueprint, the whole structure or architecture, the form of their speech with all their major points stored in what they would consider different rooms of a house that all tucked inside of their brains. And they would access a room just by one very memorable object, like a blood-soaked skin or something. That's a very powerful mnemonic device, right? This room, uh, memory room, and you you access this this room by locating various chambers, and you you put your ideas into various chambers and uh, uh, various places. You basically imagine the real life room, right? Yes, exactly. And this is really what we're doing with improvisation. We're doing the same thing that the Greek orators did. Mm -hmm. They didn't have computers or teleprompters, so they weren't ever reading their speeches. They had to they had to convince their audience through their passion, their affect, and through their organized way of giving a speech with all sorts of of rhetorical devices of grabbing the attention of the audience at the very beginning with some sort of uh, very um, 
engaging statement with colorful words or some sort of image or a joke perhaps and then they would uh, continue on to say this is what I'll talk about this is some background to it this is the next step um, and now I'm going to give you my proposition and Greek rhetoric worked that way Bach studied re rhetoric we know that he even likely taught it because he was also a Latin teacher and um, he used this in improvisation and it becomes much easier and then I think for the modern day improviser we can see that connection between uh, the written page particularly if the improviser composes out some of the assignments for the improvisation and then studies that written page tries to reduce it to an outline form that then um, would be inserted almost like a microchip into the brain and then that microchip holds all of these rooms in a house and each room has a different section or concept um, that of the piece that will be improvised and the details could come out differently every time the, the, the improvisation can be decorated in, in an infinite variety of ways so the details are the are what's happening spontaneously at the moment uh, so you are talking probably about this uh, uh, technique where students have to memorize uh, the the outline the uh, Greeks called uh, or the Latin word for it uh, loci right uh, basically yes. uh, the location as in this room in this house you place um, uh, basically the general musical idea so to say and then uh, you can elaborate endlessly in, in various uh, hundreds of ways later on in in real real situation but but you memorize the the structure of it right yes yes exactly and starting with the 18th century that was still so steeped in rhetoric is um, is very important for anyone who wants to improvise in a 19th century or 20th century or mo any kind of modern style as long as it's a pattern-based language um, such as Messian. Messian used pattern-based language and the octatonic mode is pattern-based because there's a pattern within the the mode itself. Um, so this this pedagogy or this approach works extremely well to transfer then into other eras but if it's grounded with the foundation of the 18th century the, there will be a much stronger um, sense of harmony how har harmony works and how harmony can be expanded tertially how form can be expanded in terms of time and space that the harmonic motion slows down in the 19th century but the pieces become much longer the forms become uh, bigger as well um, so it, this 18th century, I think the thorough bass and harmonizations, the chorales, and as well as this this Greek model of the the architectural blueprint, all work together for any type of improvisation, but grounded in the 18th century. That's fascinating, Pamela. It really um, opens uh, um, many, many, um, I think, uh, uh, important um, routes to take, right, uh, uh, for the student. And in your chapter about counter counterpoint and choral partitas, you talk about the difference between the, the Palestrina style counterpoint, right, and the, the Bach style counterpoint. Can you elaborate on that? 
Yes, thank you for asking that question, Vitas. It's a very important question and one I struggled with as I was writing this book because I discovered that um, as I taught counterpoint, um, I could not find a counterpoint text that I thought worked well because almost every counterpoint text has tried to build some sort of bridge between 16th century counterpoint, which was modal counterpoint. And there are different rules for how the cadences work in modal counterpoint. And, and 18th century counterpoint, which is tonal counterpoint, and is somewhat influenced by harmony, although it's, it's primarily a, a, a linear concept. So I struggled with that as I was teaching counterpoint and couldn't find a text that I found was consistent in its approach. And so I thought, well, okay, with counterpoint uh, in Bach, Bach und Fuchs's Gratis ad Parnassum, I will use Fuchs. But I fell into the same trap. And the trap is that Fuchs was using 16th century counterpoint, even though he was writing in the 18th century. So those 16th century counterpoint, the species counterpoint that we know of note against note with whole notes and then half notes against whole notes and insect against species and quarter notes against whole notes and third species and so on. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, was what Fuchs advocated but he advocated it using modes. He was using mostly chant melodies or melodies he had made up within a mode. If we transfer that and try to use chorales, which is what I was trying to do because Bach used chorales, the, the mistake I made was that uh, I, the, the cadences will not always work in Fuchsian counterpoint because the cadences in the chorales uh, the chorale melodies sometimes land on the third scale degree, which makes an improper cadence in a mode. And so I am, uh, I am in the process of reworking this counterpoint part. Almost all of the applications work in the counterpoint section. This is chapter five of my book, but there are two or three uh, pages that I plan to improve on and then offer to anyone who emails me the revision as well as I will um, publish a revised edition of the book to, to acknowledge my mistake and the trap I fell into and try to clarify the difference between 16th and 18th century counterpoint. It must have been confusing even in Bach's day if Fuchs was still using 16th century counterpoint. And uh, I know it's confusing to theory scholars around the world today yet as well. So I'll, I'll take take uh, this to heart and, and keep working on it. But I think, Pamela, it's not a big, um, big um, issue if a student is really committed to learning improvisation because he or she will feel with his or her intuition, right, uh, what kind of cadence works best for the chorale regardless of the Fuchsian uh, rules, right? Yes, yes. Well, and another point is that um, I was using the counterpoint to lead into the chorale partitas because sometimes a bacinium is makes for a nice variation. However, most, if you study the, the chorale variations or partitas of, of Bach, of course, but also the, the 
the ones that are a little bit more textbook accessible to new improvisers such as Johann Pachelbel's Corel Partitas, Georg Böhm's Partitas, you'll find that they very often use, uh, or much more often use three or four voices than they use two voices. So I also um, will just get started taking a, a more harmonic approach to the chorale variations and then talk separately about the Bacinium, but in the 18th century. So I think the 16th century counterpoint is a good exercise in the sense that it, it is very step-by-step -step with the, the note values and how to figure out how to make uh, two notes, uh, note against note sound good, but then also how to put four notes against one note. And the four notes against one note is what occurs a lot in chorale partitas. So that's, and then we call it figuration, right? We're making a four note figure on one note against one note in the bass. Yes. And that's very typical in, in the variations in the, in, both in the Baroque era, but also when you get into Mozart, Beethoven variations, the same types of figures still exist. Uh, you know what I found especially especially valuable in your book is the list or um, a list of uh, of these figures, three or four note figures you describe and present uh, with their original names. That's very very useful for students who want to, you know, uh, incorporate their in their um, bag of tricks, so to say, uh, and and then later um, uh, use them in in, in improvisation. Yes, and, and thanks for bringing that up as well, Vitas. The What I've found when I work with beginning improvisers is they find that list very helpful, and many of them find one particular figure. So let's say um, we're moving with an uh, with an ascending second in the chorale melody, so and then we need to fill in four notes, starting on, on let's say, the G, moving to an A, so then da 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 boom, one, two, three, four, dum. Some, many students find that figure to fit, fit under the fingers very nicely. And they might just practice that figure alone with a whole chorale melody such as Freudigser, which I love to start with because it has mostly stepwise motion. And so it's possible to practice primarily one interval, the, the second, the interval of a second, and one figuration. And then what they'll discover is that that figuration works well many, much of the time, but sometimes it doesn't sound quite right, especially if there's a leading tone in the bass, because it might create parallel octaves with the melody. Sometimes it just gets too repetitive, so then they need to change it up. But it, it's a good idea, actually, to just start with one or two figures, practice them so those are in what you call the bag of tricks, and then add another, a third figure, and then a fourth, and pretty soon, all, this, all of a sudden, all of these fingers, figures feel comfortable under the fingers, and um, they're all accessible within a, a, a set of variations or a chorale partita, and they can be used in sequence or in contrast to one another, and it really is quite like solving a puzzle. I've always loved doing puzzles or sudoku and things like that, and uh, it's, it's very much... Uh, a challenge like that—that's that becomes more and more fun the more you do it. Exactly, a challenge or labyrinth of choral partitas, right? 
Yes. <laughs> and you solve and you try to find the, one of the hundreds of en uh, <laughs> entrances into the labyrinth and then go out <laughs> uh, safely. Right. Exactly. So these choral partitas, basically, what we know uh, from Bach's output, output, uh, they were probably created earlier in life, right? Uh, when he was, um, be, when when he was basically a young man, right? Yes. The the also the um, some of his earliest choral preludes, the Neumeister collection, as well as some of the choral preludes. So I was uh, just uh, t t touching barely to the, this teenager collection that was re quite recently discovered, the Neumeister collection of the chorales, uh, and you probably uh, incorporate uh, those in your book too. Yes, I did. Uh, it's it's very interesting to to meet the young Bach. I don't. We don't have everything from when Bach was very young to see, uh, to witness, and to hear his uh, compositional evolution, and but to also look at some of his early compositions as an improviser, because those of us who enter improvisation after we've been playing repertoire for a long time um, realize that we can't improvise at the level that we can play repertoire immediately without putting in the same number of hours of practice into the improvisation. So the Neumeister are quite delightful. They um, have some techniques such as echo effects that we see in the choral fantasies, uh, for instance, of Tunder and Buxtehude. And um, so we see some uh, influence from the generation before Bach coming into his work when he's uh, in his youthful uh, collection of the Neumeister that doesn't appear so, uh, so much anymore later in even in the Orgelbüchlein, let alone the Schubler chorales or the Leipzig chorales, his later uh, organ preludes. And I think that's refreshing for an improviser to be able to see uh, that progression and also even maybe find a few things that could have been a little stronger in the early Bach, um, because of course we find that in ourselves when we improvise as well. That's amazing, Pamela. When Bach was a teenager, he probably felt the great influence of North German organ school through Bohm, through Reinken, right? And uh, yes. that uh, that is mirrored in in these um, basically Neumeister collection chorales. Yes. Yes, it's fascinating. Fascinating. And how he de developed later when he was in about his 40s, and he started cre create the dance suites, right? Your last chapter in your treatise uh, deals with the dance suites. Tell us a little bit uh, what you learned uh, from the uh, concept of creating dance suites and its relationship with the chorale. Yes, I can uh, preface this to say I, I wanted to experience the physical motion of dance. And I was fortunate when I was working in Sweden, in Jutebori, with uh, the GoArt project to discover that Hans Davidsen is not only a wonderful project leader and organist and pedagogue, but he also um, is a wonderful dancer as are both of his sons, they're professional dancers. And so one summer when I was there, um, Hans and I worked with a, a woman, Satako Berger, who uh, was a professional Baroque dance choreographer. She had studied treatises on dance. 
And I was at the harpsichord, and Hans and Satako learned um, couples' dances to the dance, the movements of the, uh, the that we associate with the dance suite, especially the courant, the saraband, the minuet, and the gigue. The allemande was actually never a danced dance in the 18th century. It was considered more of a prelude to the, the other dances. And I learned so much from working with them with a physical action because that if the the gigs and the minuets, for instance, um, the dancers need to be hopping and um, of course they can't stay in the air indefinitely because of gravity and that says a lot about tempo to a musician, what tempo is appropriate and therefore how much figuration is appropriate or possible in that and it was a wonderful learning experience. So I went from the physical aspect of dancing uh, then to some of the treatises of Bach's contemporaries. So uh, Friedrich Erhard Nietzsche wrote the Musikalische Handleitung, and Bach owned that treatise, and uh, he it was in his library. And Nietzsche tried to teach his readers about creating uh, dance, uh, improvisations and or compositions based on a baseline, a thorough baseline. So he's using part of what Bach talked about early on with the thorough, it was the thorough base. And so Neat gave us uh, just a thorough baseline with all quarter notes. And then he said, if you want to make this baseline into a courant, you need to put it in a triple meter and make the first note uh, have twice the value of the, of the third note in the measure, so that um, one, two, three, one, two, um, rhythm would result, that meter would result, and that would be the basis of the Quran. Uh, and so he went through various dances and, and taught his readers how to change the meter and then adjust the placement of the notes according to the dance meters. Meanwhile, Matheson, Johann Matheson, uh, worked on um, teaching his readers how to create dances, how to improvise dances, but he started from the top instead and he used chorale melodies. So we have, between Neat and Matheson, we have the chorale melody plus the thorough bass that we started out with, with Bach's pedagogy to his students, um, just in learning how to harmonize and fill in ultimate tenor. That pedagogy remains um, with uh, half of it with Matheson, half of it with Neat. And I thought, well, why not if Bach used both melody and uh, bass line early on, then let's continue that with the dance suites. It makes perfect sense because then Matheson again adjusted the rhythms. For instance, he gives the Vision Leuchtet melody and he says if you want it, if you see it as the chorale, but if you want it to be a gavat, a gavat has a double quarter note pickup or um, anacrusis. So he shows right in his treatise how do you, how would it, uh, an improviser or composer uh, take a chorale melody and set it to a dance meter so that it's possible to improvise with that.
So I, I proceed with that and give characteristics of each dance and then uh, applications with uh, little incipits showing what are the characteristics of the alamond. Okay, how can you take this chorale melody and this thorough bass and turn it into an alamond? How can you do the same for a courant, a sarabanda, a minuet, and a jig? So that's Pamela, very amazing work you do um, in, in your in your volume one. Uh, I, I think uh, people around the world will be excited to to uh, basically uh, explore your ideas and insights and also wait eagerly for volume two. Ah yes, thank you. Volume two is uh, nearly uh, finished. I have, uh, there are seven chapters in this. This is free works and continual, but I'll give you a little um, trailer, so to say, for the volume two. It it also uh, uses, makes some use of chorale melodies and thorough bass. That, that idea continues even in free works because I've discovered uh, that uh, very often we can find some sort of a chorale melody um, influence, if not even direct quote, in some of the works of Bach and his contemporaries, that that I think they were so steeped in playing chorales uh, as liturgical musicians, that that either inadvertently or consciously became part of the, the blueprint then for the free works, which comprise of interludes and cadenzas, preludes and fantasias, uh, a, a nice large section on continual playing because Bach's continual playing sounded a lot different than what we hear frequently today with continual playing. And I, I show many reasons why that is. Partimento, Fugete, and then Fugues. And that volume should be out in early 2016. And I hope to visit with you about that at uh, another point. Absolutely, Pamela. Thank you so much for your work. It means uh, very much, uh, I think, uh, to to all, all the lovers of uh, historical-based uh, improvisation. And um, f for the last part of our conversation, can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you online and with your work, with your book? Sure. I have a website at www.pamelawriterfeenstra.com. Dot com and it's P-A-M-E-L-A-R-U-I-T-E-R-F-E-E-N-S-T-R-A. And um, yeah, perhaps it's you'll ha see how to spell it also on your yes. your yes. wonderful site, Vitas, um, with that. And also what you'll find is some, um, some new materials for children. So if any of your listeners... Uh, work with children or would like to work with children, there are some resources there. Um, I talked at the beginning of our our enjoyable conversation together about the importance of having a childlike attitude, and um, I've also decided that it's important for children to have the opportunity to improvise early on, and so I've composed over a 100 songs um, that include some improvisation vocally for children while at the same time teaching them the building blocks of music and of world peace and how to find peace within and soul care and school topics such as math and science and language arts. So um, 
more about that later. So thanks so much, Pamela, for your insights and generosity for sharing your ideas. And uh, I wish uh, you great uh, musical adventures in the future as you explore those in your work, in your improvisations, and in your compositions. Well, thank you so much, Vitas, and for your inspiration of taking the storytelling and making that come to life in your wonderful organ improvisations that you are offering now in various places in the world. I think I hope your subscribers will enjoy all of that. I'm sure they will. I think they're terrific, and I commend you on your work. Thank you so much, Pamela. I'm flattered. So we'll keep in touch and um, keep me posted on your uh, work uh, in 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 volume two. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.